0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the interview segment for this week's episode of The Jack Throwful Show. This week, we are joined by a very, very special guest, Mr. Jack Nichols. Welcome to the show, Jack.
1: Thank you very much. Looking forward to it.
0: Could you explain a little bit about what a race weekend looks like for you and what your role in motorsport is at the moment?
1: Well, I work for uh, Formula E as their commentator for their television coverage and for the BBC, and I commentate on uh, Formula One for BBC Radio 5 Live and the BBC Sport website and stuff so my race weekend is basically just uh talking nonsense really I (laughs) I tend to get to the track at about usually like a Thursday and then there'll be Formula One and Formula E are a bit different in their timetables but ostensibly it's the same I commentate on some practice commentate on some qualifying and then commentate on a race and then fly home (laughs)
0: basically absolutely so When you approach the task of commentary, obviously there is so much happening in a race and it's something through this podcast I've been able to learn from kind of different sides of the paddock, what people's perceptions towards a race weekend looks like. But when you're describing that first lap of a race, what are you, what are you looking out for? What, what, what are the key points of observation for
1: you in, in those action packed moments? I think the, the key part is what is important. I'm trying to, I'm trying to watch like everything and all of the cars all of the time, and discern what is information to the viewer and what isn't and what uh, helps the viewer understand what's going on and what doesn't. And so there are times at a first corner where a lockup is a great example. So you see this puff of white smoke. And if I see that at any point, I will always try and identify who that is because that's something that you know the viewers eye will have been attracted to and you have to be like oh that's so and so locking up but a difference on the radio is that i don't have to do that so for the radio unless unless someone crashes i don't need to talk about anything other than really the top four or five sometimes last year in f1 just the top two, it didn't matter what anyone else Absolutely, was doing, yeah. it was all about Hamilton and Verstappen, so it's uh, it's trying to, it's sort of using my judgment to guess what, sure. the, what the viewer needs to know, you know.
0: So do those feel like two very separate tasks, the idea of commentating on a visual broadcast and a, and a radio broadcast, do you separate those or does it feel just sort of intuitive and, and fluent, whatever, uh, whatever medium of broadcast you're taking part in?
1: I think you have to I think there's a there's a there's a wider conversation about why motorsport commentators talk so much, because on TV we do. It's kind of wall to wall commentary, which I'm trying. It's something that I am kind of actively trying to to go away from now oh, okay. in, in, in quite in quite so much as I used to. And I think is sort of traditional. And I don't know why that is, but um you know, a a radio football commentary compared to a TV football commentary is completely different. Whereas for motorsport, TV and radio are are pretty much the same. So there are different requirements on the radio. You know, you need to sort of say the order a lot more, maybe even once every lap, whereas you don't need to necessarily on, on TV. But also, yeah, I think there's a, I think there are things from both um, disciplines that can be brought into this. So, for example, that's saying the order a lot more, which you do on radio. You know, every lap you have to be like, right, this is the situation. Yeah. Actually, I've started doing that more on on television as well, because actually I think it helps, especially if people are watching Formula E who are, you know, may well be new to it. And it's not necessarily the household names that actually recounting that order every time we see the leaders maybe a helpful yep. thing. And you watch back old F1 races in the eighties. I swear all Murray Walker did was recall the order. Like, this, yeah, but it was, just, st- it was still brilliant. It, second, it, and it third.
0: Was, yeah. It was still able. Oh, I definitely wanted to touch on Murray in, in the interview because he does seem to me, at least obviously that legendary figure from history in sports broadcasting beyond just motorsport broadcasting, his voice and his, skill and of course obviously his partnership with Martin Brundle and James Hunt and his co-commentators along the years as well it seems like uh, does that stand up for you as well him as as that truly brilliant inspirational figure
1: yeah undoubtedly and there's no doubt that I wanted to be a commentator when I was six years old because it seemed like Murray was having the time of his life and I never wanted to be a racing driver because well not that I didn't want to be but but you, but you, but you know you're not going to be right yeah. from from my point of view as a, you know as a kid growing up, and you're learning about all these drivers who started karting when they were six, being six and knowing you were never going to go karting, <laughs> like you know you you kind of uh, figured that out quite early I guess. So um, yeah he was definitely the, I think his, I think a large part of his a large part of Formula One's success came down to to Murray's passion and enthusiasm. And I think that um, had it been a different commentator on Formula One in the 80s and 90s, I don't think it would have been as big necessarily as it was, which is quite remarkable.
0: Absolutely. And I think one thing that also stood out to me from his style as a journalist is that he really emphasised having a personal connection with the drivers and that he would be able to get almost get things out of them from a point of genuine friendship. And he did want the best of them. And he was able to connect even rivals through the paddock. You know, they would both enjoy him. Do you feel a similar sense of a uh, kind of bond with the drivers and that you, you are able to kind of help each other in, in that collaborative sense?
1: Well, so two things there, first of all, I think you're right about Murray. And I, and I did a, I did an interview with a chap called Morris Hamilton, who's just written a book about Murray Walker and morris was an f1 journalist and um i was reading the book and i was struck by those relationships that as you say murray could chat to the rivals on both sides and everybody liked him and he got stuff out of them and and it did make me wonder whether murray was slightly under appreciated as a as a literal sure. journalist you know because and so the the sort of flip side of that is that i've never really considered myself a journalist in that's that's interesting (laughs) in all of this and i've and i've had debates with colleagues and friends about it you know as a sort of existential question because i've never felt like a journalist in terms of if we you know we'll be at a race and something will be happening someone's going to announce someone as a driver or sure and every all the journalists in the media center they're all going crazy you know yeah andrew benson who writes for the bbc sport website and and you know some people who work for autosport and they work for and they're all you know desperate to try and get this store oh i don't i don't care you know what i mean like until it's sure. announced then it's announced that 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 um and a journalist friend of mine the other day actually there was, there was i can't remember what happened but it was the fi that was it the ferrari launch on in one day ferrari oh, launched yeah, their yeah. car And then the FIA announced their Max, uh, Michael Massey stepping down. And then um, uh, Alpine announced the new team principal. And all of this happened in a day. And my journalist friend was like, what a day. You know, these are the days I live for. Yeah. Boring to me. Like (laughs) for me, it's not a
0: race day. It's not a race day.
1: Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm here for the for the racing. And unless the cars are racing, I don't have much obviously you keep across it and it's mildly interesting, but I don't think I have that sort of journalism in me really, which I think helps to an extent with my relationship with drivers, because I think that they see me that way, not as a friend because that, that isn't correct, but as someone who's there to, and I'm probably going to describe journalism here, but like I'm there to kind of tell the story of the race and the drivers. And I know that's what journalism is, but for for some reason, I feel a slight differ, different approach to it for, for some reason.
0: Sure. And do you think then that it feels to me like the, the idea of commentary, especially motorsport race commentary, it's you almost think of two people and two people working together and bouncing off each other. And and that kind of collaborative effort almost makes the broadcast because one person maybe is able to fill in that journalistic sort of inquisitiveness and editorializing that you don't feel that you're responsible for. And then you get to take care of more the direct like description of, of factual and what's going on in, in the race. How have you been able to approach that idea of like co-commentary?
1: Well, just quickly on what you like, I feel like I, and again, this is where it, my argument falls down a little bit, but I feel like I editorialize the race. I feel like that's my number one job is to okay. sort of make those decisions about what is important to say and not to say. So that's where it's that's where I don't know when I say I don't feel like a journalist if I'm just being an idiot and like obviously I am, you know. So I don't yeah,
0: know. I, I, I get what you mean. No, I think um, I agree that it, there's a, a different framing for it when you're it's like your your product your value is that sort of play-by-play commentary and the ingredients of that yeah aren't the same as as a writer who's writing for the express Mm. or the bbc sport literary section yeah there's definitely a different like incentive structure there
1: yeah because there's no there's no kind of focus on clicks or headlines or you know i feel like i can be a lot i don't know truer i i suppose i don't know but um as far as co-commentators go yeah it's a really important well it's kind of not i think it's it's it can be really important to have a good relationship with your co-commentator i think it can take it up a notch i think you could be fine getting along fine and, you... and people
0: people won't notice that you're able. yeah better. exactly
1: but i think when, when it stands out is when you get along well and i'm and i'm quite lucky to have a couple of co-commentators with whom i get along well or at least we you know we work together well sure. you know
0: and so with when your co commentator is an ex-racing driver like dario in, in formula e do you feel that that's a real benefit where you are you really do bring something different that he brings a completely different perspective of that understanding of of driving and mechanical sympathy and, and that sort of thing and the the pressure of a race weekend from a driver's perspective. Do you feel that's probably the best combination is a, a commentator, skill focused commentator like yourself and and then an ex-driver. Do you think that's probably been the best?
1: Yeah, and I think that's why it, it works so well. I think there and and, and and most sports have, you know, your your commentator and your ex-driver. I think there are some exceptions. I think I might be wrong, but I think V8 supercars yeah, or or, um, or I can't remember what it's called now. Australian supercars or something. I yeah. think they have two drivers, ex drivers, right. commentating together, and and they do a they do a really good job. But I think overall, you know, you see it in football, you see it in tennis, you see it in every sport. It's that it's that <laughs> journalist, let's say, sure. uh, alongside an ex driver, and I think I've I've done some decent commentaries with a non-ex driver very um I did a a year where I did a lot of co-comment a lot of commentaries with a guy called Tom Clarkson who works for Formula One does the Beyond the Grid podcast and he was my co-commentator for a year and I thought we did I thought we did some good stuff and I think it um and we kind of came at things from different angles despite sort of both uh being from the sort of journalism world. But I think the the ideal is the the, the X driver just gives you credibility, right? It's like, okay, Dario Franchitti has won the Indy 500 three times. So when he says this is happening, you know, this is happening. You know, even Julian Palmer brings a bit of credibility. (laughs)
0: Fair enough. I think I I wanted to touch on the, because you do work so heavily in both Formula One and Formula E. You probably come into contact with people that just work exclusively in Formula One or just exclusively in Formula E. Do you Are there observations about the paddock environment that are really, really different? Or do you think that there's more similarity than most people would expect?
1: Um, I honestly, I don't know what people would expect, but they are totally different. Yeah. totally different in a lot of ways so formula e is so open and so um because it's a smaller pond basically yeah. so i am for me personally i am the only commentator in formula e that okay. is at the i didn't know that
0: okay
1: yeah that's so, interesting okay. right There are lots of there are lots of uh, it's done in lots of languages around the world. But I am the only English speaking commentator, you know, full stop. Uh, Actually, the U.S. now 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 use um, some gentlemen called Bob Varsha and Ryan Marine, who are both lovely. But they're in America. So at the track, I'm the only commentator. So. I can. Exactly do whatever I like, but because I've been there for eight years, I can walk into a garage, any garage, no problem. Go find who I want to talk to. Uh, some teams, because I, you know, know the drivers all right. I can go into their like drivers' room, just open the door and sit down and have a chat. Not even necessarily about the racing, about where they went on holiday or whatever. And then all of the drivers and teams in Formula E eat in like a canteen, like a central canteen. So I don't think that would
0: this, work in Formula One. Be no, this is the thing. So everybody's at One. lunch
1: together. You go in and you'll see over there and it's always the same gangs like, you know, Van Dorn and Da Costa and whatever will always have lunch together and Buemi will always have, we'll have lunch with them. You know, it's kind of like a it's kind of like a high school sort of vibe. Whereas in Formula One, I've, uh, I might have never been in a Formula One garage. I don't think I've ever been inside. A Formula One pit garage because yeah. you're not allowed. And I've I've oh, have I ever had a one-on-one interview with an F1 driver? I don't think I have. I've I've stood in sort of a you know a line of people and asked my two sure. questions. Yeah, and that's sort of it. So it's it's the access is so entirely different that it's almost a sort of different job on. On that front, and obviously it's natural because there are well, there's four English commentators, English-speaking commentators for F1. Just just the English at the track because there's there's us on BBC, there's Channel Four, there's Sky, and there's a Formula One World feed. So that's four. Then you course, add in four
0: sets as well, isn't it? Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. Then you add in yeah. French and Spanish and Italian, and and they all come to the races. So there'll be so just commentators commentators and co-commentators at a race you probably have 60 people compared to Formula E, where you have one or two me and dario so the access is kind of completely different
0: it seems to me what you did when you describe a a modern formula e paddock it almost sounds like an old school f1 paddock because it sounded exactly like that murray walker effect of being able to genuinely get positive reception from the teams and drivers even though you're not a part of their team directly, whereas in Formula One, it feels like everything would be about. Oh well, should I say that to you because you might quote me out of context on that, and it's so high stakes. But also, probably it doesn't need to be as high stakes as, as it maybe feels like it is. Well, That's I just think, for, from my fan perspective.
1: Yeah, and I think I think that I think that it, it goes back to those olden days because you you hear about it not only with Murray but also with with journalists uh, like. I was looking at my bookshelf for some, jam- but like you sort of Alan Henry's were were all very popular and and because there wouldn't be many and there would be, yep. I don't know, 10, 5 or 10 journalists that would travel the world with Formula One. And so they'd get to know the drivers and they'd get to know people and it would be like, oh, this is this guy. This is that guy. Whereas Formula One these days. You come in, you've got no idea who anyone is. There's a 100 of them one person once probably screwed you over with something you said so you're like well I'm not sure. going to say anything to anyone basically you know is, is kind of the attitude I think that a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of drivers take and understandably so
0: but in Formula E you do get that benefit from the broadcast yeah. of having it be so integrated it does show through I think in in the quality of bits of information that you are able to give out freely whether it's about a driver's technique or an uh, incident that people may not know about or tiny little technical things that freedom is a a sort of virtue of Formula E and it's a point at which it is able to be distinctly better Mm -hmm. than Formula 1 in a somewhat objective sense I feel which might be quite hard for other other kind of aspects of the sport take me back to when race commentary became an idea in in your head as oh I could do that
1: well, it I honestly wanted to do it when I was like six or seven, yeah. and I used to like you know, commentate on my toy cars and all of that sort of slightly embarrassing stuff. um But it was only a very I never really, and at the time, there was one commentator, which was Murray. so you think, "Oh, well, obviously, I'm never going to do that. Yeah, well, you don't even think about it that deeply. but when you're then, 14 at school and you're starting to have career talks and stuff there's not many motorsport commentator courses at GCSE you know and then you go and do your UCAS applications and there's not a motorsport commentator drop down that I can click to say I want to do that so it sort of went away um from me to be honest until um and I would still commentate on my cars and stuff like that. Well, not well, not not like I grew out of that a little bit. <laughs> but uh, two thousand and eight, basically, basically I screwed up my maths A level, and so I had to have a year off doing retakes. So I was working yeah. on the checkouts at Sainsbury's in Norwich, and um, I started doing. It was twofold. I started doing. Uh, sim racing esports okay and i started marshalling at the local racetrack which was netton
0: that's really uh, interesting sorry you, you, just because you mentioned about esports there to look back on that now the progression of esports where we see it with a virtual Le Mon every year and max verstappen having not only himself but having a team that he leads competing in that but just sorry the, the mention of esports there i do you view it like that as well having such a history in it yeah it's
1: it's insane so yeah i started doing it in 2008 so i was 18 and it was uh it wasn't a big it was very niche and it's obviously still quite niche but it was obviously really niche then and the first race i ever commentated on was just sort of this divisional race in a in a series called formula sim racing because i was racing in it and then they were like oh we need commentators for some of the other series i was like okay well i'll do that because that i've always wanted to do that wow and the first uh the first one i did was one by a chap called bono Huis who has gone on to win the visa Formula E vegas e-race and i think he's won he certainly races in f1 esports and uh gone on to be a, a right old professional so i started commentating on those and then i was at i'd be at the track marshalling and it's and it's chucking it down with rain and I'm thinking, why have I done this voluntarily? And then there would be some old dude on the public address, like, da, da, da. So like that's how I want. Like, I want to try doing that, right? And so I said, "Oh, you know," and, each... and oh, yeah, come along. Blah, 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 blah. So I started doing public address, and I didn't. And um, marshalling is completely voluntary. Commentating, they suddenly paid you like a little bit of money, and it was like, oh well, yeah, obviously I'll do this. Then I wasn't expecting that. And then so while I was doing my gap year, I would gap year working at Sainsbury's (laughs) I would would go around and you know start commentating and then I went to uni and just kind of carried on doing that while I was while I was at uni basically to the point where when I left uni I uh you know I had enough work to sort of just be a be a commentator in fact I missed a I missed a final exam at uni because I went to China to do an FIA GT base, so wow, yeah, yeah it's a bit nuts, really. Could have gone badly, but it was all right. How was the race? Uh, it was uh, it was quite boring, but, oh. <laughs> but, the, guy, but the guy who hired me it was the first time he'd hired me, we'd never met, and he's now the um executive producer on Formula E. So I started working with him, so I met him there, worked with him on GTs, and then he got the Formula E job and hired me for Formula E. So there you go, is 10 it, years ago it, that was now.
0: That's amazing. Is it small little connections like that? How you were like able to progress from sim racing to public announcements at at race tracks and then almost up there because there is a sort of ranking of little, you know, like MX5 series or Citroen hatchback racing on national circuits around the UK, and then an evolution maybe to like touring cars and then open wheel and up through that was it just kind of taking opportunities when you could see them that enabled you to kind of progress up through that rank?
1: It was lots, lots of things fell in my favor. Um, initially, there was a few, there were, there were, there were no, there are no commentators my age. I mean, like this weird, yeah. like middle ground. Well, actually Jakey, I don't know. I- I never know how old Alex Jakes is. I think <laughs> I think he's a few years older than me. But he didn't, and I'm not knocking him for this, but he he didn't come up through the motorsport ranks, right? He went to oh, um okay. he went to um I don't want to tell his life story because I can't really remember it very accurately, but he did sort of radio journalism at like I wanna say BBC Radio Yorkshire or something like that, and was doing sport. But like F one, sure. So sort of transitioned that way. So we sort of he actually emailed me in about twenty fourteen or fifteen, saying, "Oh hi, how can I get into motorsport?" Oh, and then it's like, "Oh well, now you've overtaken me, haven't you?" So good <laughs> one. But uh, yeah, but but apart from Jakey, who wasn't who wasn't there at the time, there were no commentators my age, and for like. I'd say almost 10 years. There was a guy called Ben Constant Juras who was maybe in his, I was 21. I was 20, 21. And he was maybe, I want to say early, mid thirties, early thirties, at least. And so I was the Mm. only young person around. Like I I was so like, whereas now there's loads of 20 to 20, four-year-old motorsport commentators honestly loads and i don't know why that sudden interest or or what or what i don't know if it's because esports has gotten bigger and so that's kind of brought that with it i don't know but most of my luck was being the only young person so anyone who goes oh you know we should have a young person do it so we can be cool and trendy would hire me that's how Formula E happened really they wanted a young person that no one had heard of I was the only young person and luckily no one had heard of me so like that was quite straightforward that
0: first um do you remember the day where you got that email or that phone call that said hi would you like to work on on this new electric racing series
1: well because I'd been working with the 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 producer before i sort of knew that he'd got it and he was sort of like you know we'd like you on it so it was all a bit more of a slow and i went to the car launch a year before the first race and i sort of hosted that a little bit so it was that was a bit of a slow burner one i suppose you know so like well, it wasn't like a complete out of the blue thing it kind of crept up Really. Um, The other big thing really quickly that helped my career immeasurably was 2012 when Sky and BBC shared the F1 rights because suddenly they needed two TV commentators. So Crofty was at Sky with Brundle. Brundle obviously left BBC, went to Sky. So BBC needed a commentator. They picked Ben Edwards and Ben Edwards was doing the job that I'd filled in for in 2011. So then he left. So suddenly I had a whole year of work in 2012, which was the year I graduated uni. So it's all of these things that just like, you just kind of luck out sometimes. All these things have to kind of come together, you know.
0: But your skill is is still backing that up. And I'm sure throughout that time, if you were to listen to some of your old race commentary, would there be things that you spot as, oh, that was a, a bad habit I used to have or also maybe things that you think oh i should do a bit of that more in, in your you know we speak about your progression through the categories but also in terms of the progression of the skill of race commentary how do you feel that has uh, trended throughout the year i suppose
1: i think uh, i watched back some old stuff recently well not recently maybe like six months ma- and i remember thinking you know what that's not bad Right. <laughs> but- I like my the first Formula Two, my first live TV commentary and I was 20 and it wasn't bad. I was quite pleased with that. Um, I think I went through a stage and it's one I'm still trying to sort of get out from. Of shouting too much. Almost as a. Almost as a. um, And I think it came from Formula E because I think. In the early years. You sort of had to try quite hard to make formulary seem exciting, yeah. so I think yeah. I maybe overcompensated a little bit, and now I'm sort of out the other side. And formulary is quite good and interesting. Sure. So I need to like dial it back, I balance it out, yeah. Yeah, and that's so that's something I've been working. I've been working on it for like four years now, and I don't seem to be progressing anywhere because when I listen back now, it's like, oh, you're still shouting. Stop shouting. But
0: um, part of that is just a natural self-criticism. I mean, if I'm sure I have to listen back to my first podcast, it was only just under a year ago, and I would have a ton of things to point back and and edit it all. But how that idea of um, describing a race well, in your fandom, when you were looking to these different motorsport categories, was it always Formula One that you felt had that action had that really captivating racing drama or were there other things that you felt as a fan, like it kind of embodied the spirit that you also looked to present in your commentary? What what are you a fan of is the real question, but that's a complicated <laughs> way of asking it. What racing series did you like when you were younger?
1: <laughs> uh I didn't so I it's mad when I think about it now. But I was not from a motorsport background. Like my dad liked F1 as yeah. as, as much as you know, most as sort of like a, you know, in the same way that seventy percent of moat sport of F one fans like F one, you know, they yeah. they like it quite a bit. He'd yeah. been to one Grand Prix, I think he went to Brands Hatch in the eighties with a mate. He'd watched it on telly if it was on telly, you know, very into it but casual. Sure. And so I didn't know that there was any other racing in the world right until like 2004 I started going to British touring car I discovered British touring cars on ITV or whatever so I started getting into touring cars and we would go and watch touring car races and I would get into Formula One a little bit more and we started going to like Spa to an F1 race and Monza to an F1 race but I had no concept of the junior series. I had no concept. Of, I quite liked rallying back then. Cause they would do channel four highlights each night at sort of right. seven o'clock. So you could sort of remember to set your VHS up and uh, take, record those. But really it was just formula one. And then when I got into touring cars, it was Ben Edwards, who for me is the best motorsport commentator that there has been. Oh, okay. uh, in my opinion, obviously Murray, is murray but ben's like better absolutely there's maybe a, like a conversation
0: to be had there yeah
1: yeah maybe not as you know charismatic or iconic or sort of legendary but undoubtedly better
0: yeah in the technical aspect of it you feel like yeah, that's, a real, exactly. that's a measurable thing
1: Interesting. yeah so uh yeah so ben and murray were my were my two sort of inspirations i uh I suppose and then you just try and have to sprinkle who you are into it which I think is actually something I've got better at that's something actually that there's not there's not much of me in my old commentaries I'm very much being like a commentator
0: right and it's more personal now so it's more, more yeah. of more d- of is that
1: is that right or wrong I don't know because I think it's definitely right I think commentary isn't about you you know what I mean like no one but only my mum is watching Formula E because of me everyone else is watching <laughs> sure. because of the cars so there's a there's a there's a line to to balance but yeah I think bringing a bit more personality to it is something that I definitely got a bit more into.
0: Absolutely and how do you in those kind of first years of getting started with race commentary how did you approach the logistics of, of what that actually looks like whether it really is traveling all around the world to china instead of final uni exams you know that idea of of it being so different to what a normal work week looks like for someone else did you respond to that positively or did you feel a bit jaded with the the whole world travel
1: i i never wanted a nine to five that was always just something that never appealed to me and felt a little bit like uh trapping isn't trapping isn't the right word like i don't know i just felt like throughout school throughout a levels throughout uni you're just getting funneled into this sure, into yeah. this world that you have no real choice in you have like a vague choice of do you want to do science or humanities yeah okay fine then we'll filter you down a little more in that we'll filter you down a bit more in that until you come out you know ready to go and I was always quite anti that but without and I think this is one of the big failings of education is that it's it's all it's all just about going to uni like that's the only thing that is important in society's mind to a child right and I felt very frustrated by that and I felt very restricted by that and so finding this was so sort of exciting to me and all the traveling was just a huge huge bonus to be honest because it was just because yeah okay everyone was and you lose a bit of because everyone's working nine to five so and then free at the weekends and you're off at the weekends. so you it's been a struggle to on a few levels like that but overall no um there are years where you go this is this is quite a lot yeah and i don't know if i could still do because at the moment we do sort of half of the formula one races from london still because of covid and budget and stuff and that makes it a lot more doable, but yeah, I've never had any um regrets or or there's a few times where you go, ah oh, i'm a bit I'm away too much, but nothing major yet
0: uh, that's really interesting just because it is so unique as a role. I mean, obviously in Formula One, there's sixty now, but even just to be those, yeah, yeah. that set of people relative to the other categories of work, it is still so specialist. I'd love to know about your perception of Formula E in that first year. I know you've been working with the director for a while before that, but the idea of a a new electric racing series and being a really integral part of the presentation of that series, how how do you remember kind of the first year of Formula E? Well,
1: when they asked me to do it you're like yeah great you know i was literally no i was out of uni wasn't i was i out of uni when yeah i was out of uni i was 23 and you're like well yeah obviously i'll do this major championship like there was no sort of did i get on board with it because i believed in it i didn't know anything about electrical cars or electric whatever's and for me, the moment where I was like, "Oh, okay," was was at that, that car launch. It was the twenty thirteen Frankfurt Motor Show. They launched the car. I'd never been to a motor show before, to be honest. And suddenly, you're walking around looking at cars, and I don't really, um, I don't really care about cars like road cars. Like, sure, oh, I don't. I just don't care. Like, if they're racing, I'm all over it. If they're just, oh, look at this <laughs> new door. On the or look at the slope on the back of it. It's not for me. That's gonna that's
0: gonna split the audience right down the middle. I'm no, exactly. And that's that fine, agreeing. and
1: that's fine, and that's and that's understand- And I have it at work. People will be like, "Oh, have you seen the new Porsche?" Yeah. Something. I was like, "Nope." <laughs> and I look at it. Yeah. Or look at those. weird like. So I bought a new car, and my this producer who who I went to China for and all of that was like, "Please tell me you got the." whatever the the wheel the, this particular wheels oh yeah i was like no i just got the standard wheels he's like <laughs> joking they're disgusting <laughs> I mean, they're, dis- they're just like silver like it's wheels yeah disgusting like anyway so it's not for me anyway point being i'm at frankfurt motor show and there's quite a lot of electric cars there they just launched that year the i3 the bmw i3 the renault zoe i think it was and there was yeah. some other hybrid around. I can't remember what. And you were suddenly like, okay, this is a thing then, because it almost when it was announced, there weren't electric cars. Like it was unbe- Like Alejandro Gag and the FIA. It's unbelievable timing. It's unbelievable yeah. because when it was announced, everyone was like, well, why do we need? We don't have electric cars. Why would we raise them? Now, eight years later, there are ever kids born to death today they're never going to drive a petrol car there's probably 10 year olds who are never going to drive a a petrol car so
0: yeah there was was that that, wider shift in the motorsport industry that was then reinforced by or gave you positive look to where the
1: series could go and it was exciting to be part of something from from scratch to be honest that was a really cool part of it to you know introduce things and say things or do things that could then become you know that's what it's about you know we kind of got to decide what Formula E was was about you know in conjunction with Formula E and
0: What what were some of those decisions then along the way was it just to do with how it would be presented I mean did did you feel like you were given real freedom there
1: I felt like I could mess around a lot and have a laugh and be a bit silly and be a bit irreverent and be a bit sort of myself because we are, we were, we are trying to attract a younger demographic, right? was sort of the theory. And I was 23. No, I was 24 for the first race. And that was kind of the demographic 18 to 28 or something i can't remember the exact window or 16 to 30 or you know that sort of window so i was allowed to be me in order to try and attract that whereas when you're doing and it's changed a little bit now but certainly when i started doing formula one on bbc radio you were very much well i'm on the bbc now so you have to be very
0: you know
1: yeah yeah exactly and because of the way the world has gone in the last what do we think three or four years where everything's a bit more the day you know the world of i'm gonna sound like such an old man saying this but the 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 world now of tiktok and Mm. instagram stories and you know everything's a bit more irreverent yeah anyway So um, I'm allowed to do that more. But from Formula E, you were sort of allowed to do it right from the start. And it's even down to things like um, I'm just trying to think of a. Think of an of of an example, but. I'm trying to think of a good formula example, but, but I can't. But. The way we. We all work together in how we wanted to present Formula E to. Sure. To the the, pe- the people, and what the main messages were from Formula E, because Formula One, you're not doing messaging, right? You're not. You're just saying yeah. this is what's happening in the sport. Whereas Formula E, you're trying to be like, this is good, guys. If you've yeah. just knew this is what a kilowatt hour is, or this is what a
0: yeah. And it, it seems like um, Alejandro has also looked to expand that into Extreme as well as as that new category. Formula E, you know, relatively in the history of of motorsport is new, but then extremely that kind of additional development of bringing that environmental impact like onto the screen directly, as opposed to it being like the theory of, yeah, well, of course, these cars, yeah, using no fuel, but really bringing that imagery of of the environment onto the broadcast with extremely seems like that's an evolution of, of the messaging you spoke about there. I'd love to know how the progression of the series has kind of grown for you do you feel like it's maybe the last like two years it's been a spike or or do you feel like a gradual rise
1: in attendance how how has it looked to you like sometimes it just doesn't feel like it's changed at all honestly like and i know that's a bit stupid but like the teams have got all a bit um you know better yeah. and the drivers have got better but for driving, me they, driving standards have
0: improved equipment. yeah
1: absolutely the the cars have got better the circuits have got better but it doesn't fe- really feel any different to me in that first race in Beijing you know they've got they've got nicer tents for garages now but right. it's still the cars are in the pit lane I'm in my little booth like even on the TV side, I don't know how much more budget we have now, but it must have doubled or tripled. Sure. I would guess season one. I don't know, but for me, it it just feels the same because I'm in the pit lane where all the cars are and the drivers are, or I'm in the commentary booth where I have the you know the TV pictures and a timing screen and my laptop. And that's been the same since the start. So there's definitely more, you know, the hospitalities get bigger and everything sort of gets bigger and fancier. It doesn't feel any different to me, which is a bit, which is a bit weird. I think maybe because I've been there for like every single. Well, I missed. Like, I can't remember three or four races, but sure. I think if I went back to season one now, I'd probably be like, "Wow, this was why they doing this yeah, was really pit, pit funky, in wasn't middle, it? Yeah. Back in the day, but um." Yeah, but it, but the sort of feeling of it still feels the same.
0: That's really interesting. So it's almost yeah, it's more more similar than different. But to me, I, I can say I, I only really started watching race by race in detail Formula E um, in like two thousand and nineteen, and then to see even the way it's grown from then until now, it does seem like the the just competitiveness of sort of the, the top ten drivers. Is so high, and on any one race weekend, I think uh, obviously it's part of the series that the cars are kind of the a smaller gap between the top and the bottom than we see in Formula One. But it feels to me like that's really manifested over the last few years in that to win a championship, it is you know it's not always about trying to win every race. We are able to see with I think like Nick de Vries's championship that consistency was really how he was able to build that yeah. point tally. And it feels like the opportunity to prove yourself throughout a season in the best equipment. But I think also part of it is um, it's evolution to like a world championship, right? That's been added to the messaging recently. It's now the FIA. I'd love to hear you do it in the commentary. it's the ABB FIA Formula E World Championship.
1: Easy peasy.
0: But that growth, yeah, outside of Europe is also part of it, and part of why I think it is. um, increasing in popularity and and that fan engagement is is growing
1: yeah and i I think think, because i think the weird thing for me is that season one we did we started in beijing in china then went to malaysia and then went to uh buenos aires in south america in argentina then to uruguay right then i think to miami and long beach two races in america then to moscow uh and then for a sort of few races in europe so like
0: okay
1: it felt super global for me just wasn't
0: wasn't recognized
1: right from the start yeah exactly and it felt really global and then covid and it all got a bit more restricted And then we sort of lost asia a little bit we lost sort of south america because countries would come in then and sort of start you know we had hong kong and that went away so actually season one was so global okay maybe even the most global year we've had i wonder i might have a look at that well i'm i'm not gonna even bother to do it but but it's a nice I'll, I'll,
0: I'll put it in the description of the podcast yeah yeah
1: exactly so you know it was so global to start with that it, it's never felt right more global or less because it was so global at the at the beginning to to me you know
0: and as we look to this season 2022 formula e we've had first three rounds two different tracks the first three rounds and it seems almost anyone's game i mean stoffel van Dorn seems like a a good shout in terms of his experience and that consistency we spoke about earlier and and having a good equipment then obviously his teammate is is a champion and, and they will probably have a team battle that might ultimately not benefit his overall championship how do you see any of the the rest of the 2022 season progressing with the trends we have from the first three races
1: i think the only the only trend i see is mercedes will be in it because they obviously did well in Deria, okay they slipped away a little bit but then obviously good in well good, good good-ish in mexico I can't remember where did where did they they were on the podium were they but they did you know they were all right. be in here somewhere yeah they, but yeah. they did all right whereas Porsche in Mexico was quite it was very impressive but we've had a few flash in the pans basically from Porsche Puebla last year was a good example where they were superb but yeah never did anything else really all season well Lotter was on the front row a couple of times but you know I think that Envision will always be lurking there or thereabouts with Robin Freintz, but I don't see him having a championship challenge. The big question for me is Jaguar and Tachita because Mercedes, Jaguar and Tachita are for me the big three. And we haven't seen anything from Jaguar or DS Tachita yet. So it's how, how soon they can sort of sort themselves out is my thought.
0: Absolutely. And when we touch on Antonio Giovinazzi, obviously the last few days, his future has been thrown up in the air a little bit, but at the moment he is still contracted to be Formula E driver for um, a couple of years. What do you think is a good like goal for his season? Because it seems like his equipment isn't up there to be running and near the top of the pack every weekend, but he's come over from Formula One, which is the pinnacle of motorsport. And yeah, he was a relatively common quick driver in formula one he got had q3 appearances he was sometimes outperforming his equipment and beating kimmy in the same car when he's transitioning over to formula e and everything's so different how do you think he can be how, how can he set goals for himself in in this year
1: i think it's i think it's just the the, the sort of teammate comparison right. is all is all you have to go on really because sergio sede camera was pretty decent Last year, actually, he was he was pretty impressive and he um, comfortably really beat Nico Muller, I think, for the first half of the of the season. He comfortably beat Nico Muller, who's very quick. And I think that's got to be Jovanazzi's target. And he didn't start particularly well in Deria. not helped by the fact he didn't do all of preseason testing. But. I think that that is, it's going to be those flashes of, oh, good lap. Sure. Out qualifying, set their camera by a few places and then finishing ahead of him. That's when you'll be like, okay, good stuff, Giovinazzi. Because obviously he's not got much experience. He's coming into a team where the, the, the package isn't great, but also I think the team aren't necessarily particularly strong either. So it's a real, real challenge for, for him, I think.
0: And with the new the new qualifying format we have as well, how do you think that that benefits the overall racing of the series? And also, how do you approach that as a broadcaster? A new format that will be complicated. It's more, arguably more simple than what Formula East format used to be, but how do you approach presenting that new format? And yeah, what do you think it achieves? Sport?
1: I think it's I think it's I think it's fantastic. I think it's entertaining, and I think it's much. Fairer because we've we've seen the the Mexico race was great. I yeah. thought it was a really good race. No one crashed, no one rammed, no one, no yellow flags or full course yellows. But it was just entertaining and good because you had the good people, the championship contenders up at the front, so it kind of meant something. We weren't spending the whole race, and it's been a real challenge for us. Being like, oh, by the way, Nick De Vries, who started twenty third, he's now up to seventeenth. Yeah, like keeping track of all of that was really really difficult. So I think it was good on that front. So I think it's I think it's much fairer. Uh, we had lots of meetings about how to sort of display it and stuff and how to. But I think it's ended up being fairly sort of self-explanatory. I need to learn how to say duels yep. because I say duels <laughs> yeah. and everyone thinks I'm talking about a duel, like a like a like a the crown jewels but i don't yeah. know how else i'm meant to say it so i'm yeah. like trying to say duels like because d- yeah. americans say duels but yeah. i can't say duels
0: <laughs> but if yeah. i say
1: jewels, they think i'm saying jewels. so i'm so i'm having to try and learn how to say duels and teach myself yeah. how to say duels so that's been the most challenging part of the new corner wow, okay me is they've picked a word they've named it a word i can't the commentator can't say it's like yeah great idea right
0: and do you think that, I'm trying to imagine if Formula One took that qualifying format, do you think it would benefit them in the same way? I mean, obviously, they don't have that kind of system that Formula E used to have of having a negative impact on championship position or, or anything like that. Do you think Formula One could, could adapt its qualifying format in a similar way, or is it a problem yeah, of, because you know, I think... it's not broke,
1: don't fix it? Well, so a few things. There, because like you say, if it's not broke, don't fix it. But they're bringing in the sprint races to absolutely just give the grid just a little muddle. And I think, and I think it's worked on that front. I think the sprints themselves are boring and pointless, and you can do it over one. It's not a new, yeah,
0: it's not a new product at all.
1: Yeah, because they just it shuffles the start a little bit, and whoever qualified on pole you know, if they lose the lead at the start, then suddenly they start second. Yeah, and That's kind of what it's there to do. So I think that's the thing, if, if they brought in something like the duels or filled with qualy a little, that could give you that slight, cause that's what I like about it. it, it's a slight jumble. It's not yeah. a complete upside down like last year, but it's just a little jumble. And I, I don't think Formula One, I don't think they should just copy the, the duel system, but I think that uh, I'd prefer they found a way to make quali a bit more random than having the sprint personally, but okay. but Sprint gives them money, so why okay. no?
0: right, let let me pitch you my solution, right? Oh, okay, is this how I've solved the problem? you You have two sprints. One of them is the top half of the grid, and one of them is the bottom half of the grid because that means if you qualify high, you get so you take q three, they do one sprint, and then the bottom half of the grid, 10th to 20th they do a separate sprint but they start at the front of the grid and what that solves for me is that if you get into q3 it almost banks that your furthest back position will be 10th. So you yeah. can it protects you it protects the big teams from suffering a, an incident like um like perez did the, the british grand prix sprint where he crashed out in the sprint at the start of the bat it protects them from that And then also for the smaller teams, it enables them to get more sponsor time, more value for their sponsorship, more TV time, because you're not having to focus on the front runners and it brings more maybe like attention to those rear running drivers. But also I think, I guess for the guy starting 11th in that back half of the grid sprint race, he can only lose. Mm. So I'm not, I'm not sure if that's a, a great solution, but I was just trying to think like how, how you could keep obviously, corporate Formula One won't want to throw away any of the investment they've made into the sprint. Yeah, in a way where you could improve it slightly and maybe cover like you know a, a driver who's a rookie or is is used to being in that back half of the grid. Suddenly, they're racing only cars that are as fast as them, and you wouldn't get any of the like blue flags or anything like that. I don't know. I'll um I'll go. Uh, what is it, Stefano Domenicali at Formula One? <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll send in my send in my plan.
1: No, it's, well, I, thought that, I thought that could yeah, work. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a neat solution. It's a neat solution. Um, but I, th- I think it's a neat solution. My biggest thing with the sprint is I don't know what f I don't think I know what F1 are trying to do with it, you know? Because yeah. then you could be like, okay, well, how about this? But I don't know what their end goal is, you know, what they're yeah. trying to do with it. Because do they want it to be the... Maybe they want it to be that Perez starts at the back of the grid if he has a problem. Maybe they want that. I don't know. That's the the frustrating part. So we've touched
0: on where Formula E 2022 season might go. I think I'd love to touch on, just before we finish, where the Formula 1 2022 season could look to progress. You know, We haven't had any races yet like we've had in Formula E, but we've had the Barcelona test, a little bit of insight into what the teams are looking like, not with the timings per se, but just the technical advancement and from the onboards you can kind of tell where the cars are, are looking so after the barcelona test what were your takeaways as a non, non-journalist <laughs>
1: um i think that uh probably the same as everybody like mercedes say that they're not that strong but they say that every year yeah. red bull will be fine i think that i think the it seems to me the big question is. Ferrari and McLaren how good are they really because they look quite decent my BBC F1 co-commentator Jolian Palmer he was out in testing and he texted me saying Ferrari for the title and I'm like really yeah. is that yes yeah? like, but he like he likes his bold claims but he said Verstappen for the title last year and ended up being right so are McLaren and Ferrari as good as they look I mean it would just be amazing if we had four teams going for it absolutely
0: be back like the, the V8 era, it seems to me like that was the really striking thing from those championships is even if it was probably three constructors of Red Bull, Ferrari, McLaren, but both of their drivers were competitive, whether it was a, a team lineup of Jensen Button and Lewis Hamilton or Sebastian Vettel and Mark Webber, you have two drivers that are going to be competitive in a team that can bring a competitive car and transfer that kind of logic over to Daniel Ricciardo, Lando Norris, both in a competitive McLaren against Carlos Sainz and Charles Leclerc in a competitive Ferrari, that could be a huge battle because it feels like none of those drivers are, are slow. It feels like they all are like near that top of the grid when you're looking at who's the best driver every weekend. ricardo has got that experience winning multiple races. He's quick and you know, understands the race craft really well. And then young guys come through just with that fearlessness and, and that speed. How do you feel that, the way the championship played out last year could impact the Formula One season this year. Do you feel like the outcome of that investigation is actually going to be anything significant apart from obviously the removal of, of Michael Massey as race director? Is anything else gonna trend over from last year, you
1: feel? I don't think so. I think that it just needs just needs a bit of a firmer hand on the driving standards and what's a penalty, what's not a penalty, all of that. Yeah. And I think and I think that's kind of Yes, I don't. I think that you know Hamilton will be sort of fired up by it all. But I think pretty soon, all of last year will get. By the time we're one or two races in, I think last year will kind of be forgotten. To be honest, maybe not by Lewis Hamilton fans because I don't think they'll sure. they'll ever forget. But um for sort of you know uh, your sort of general Formula One fan yeah. or or neutrals or whatever. I think as soon as we had a race or two we we'll kind people of people have quite short, short
0: memories yeah yeah yeah, just yeah are able to move on from things i mean it feels like even we saw a little bit of that last year where there was so much drama in each individual race weekend you know every race weekend you were just talking about what happened last week what's going to happen this week what's going to yeah. happen maybe next week but it was very kind of short term so yeah maybe the the Bahrain race everyone will you know get a whole new set of headlines especially with the removal of Massey as race director, I felt like that was more of just a decision. Whatever you think about his actions in that final race, it felt like the sport kind of needed that new figure in race direction just to remove that controversy because otherwise every weekend everyone would be analyzing every race directing decision in the context of of past mistakes potentially. Do you feel like that change was essential?
1: Yeah, because To me. Massey, Massey didn't follow the rules in Abu Dhabi, like he didn't implement the rules properly as race director. And, you know, for that to happen sort of intentionally. In a championship defining scenario. For me was completely unacceptable and I don't, but there's a middle ground here because I don't believe in any way. That it was done for Verstappen to win, it was done <laughs> so that we had a one lap shootout.
0: Yeah, it wasn't, you're,
1: you're... it wasn't so he could win or anything like that. It wasn't a conspiracy against Hamilton. They just wanted a they wanted a show and and so they sort of broke their own rules or he broke the FIA's own rules in order to to get it. And that's where I think. Uh, it was sort of unacceptable and, and, and inevitable that, that he needed to go.
0: I like the way you had characterised it after the final race. Just I think it was on your Twitter account when you said that there's always been a fine line in F1 between the show and the sport and Abu Dhabi felt like a bit of a wobble. And that, I thought, was was great because it really characterised, you know, it wasn't Formula One is ruined for the rest of time because yeah. every championship is, is corrupt and, and manipulated or whatever. But it needs to be noted as as a significant event in that debate of, of whether formula one is theatrical and, and a show or, or, or a pure sporting event and it seems like your role in commentary will give you some insight there because you're part of the show you're not driving but you're describing a, a sport how do you feel those themes balance out
1: i think that motorsport has a real um and Formula One, but sort of motorsport overall has this real like fear of being boring in a way that other sports, I don't think do. I mean, like how boring is curling? But everyone was watching the curling during the Winter Olympics. And some people really like curling, but obviously to some people it's really boring because like, well, look at it, but curling isn't in some like, maybe it is, I don't know, but some existential turmoil because how can we get people to think it's not boring people are bored by some sports and not bored by you know Americans okay that was going to be too broad a statement but well, I my, my Ameri- mom
0: my mom's american so careful yeah <laughs> i
1: have american friends who i was with a few um i don't know months ago or years ago or something anyway the the football comes on the 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 soccer and I'm watching it, and they're like, this is so boring, sure. so boring. And you're like, fine. They're like, and then that night, we went to a baseball game. Oh, my <laughs> God. How long do those last? Like, and they yeah. just keep missing. I didn't realise how often baseballs don't yeah. hit the ball. But yeah. one man's boring is another person's not boring. And so you don't need to, and that's where... You know i think drive to survive is great i think there's some top quality fake commentary on it and i think that um it's it's oh, coming great. out
0: soon as well yeah absolutely yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Part, think, part of the conversation at the moment
1: and i think it's been great for the for the series but we don't need to then warp what for and this is my feeling with the sprint as well you don't need to warp the sport just to try and get more people interested because if the sport's good this is the thing last year the sport was good, so people watched. It's very easy yeah. to get... The sport had been bad since 2014 because Mercedes dominated. It had been utterly boring. Yeah. Because would say but, 20, 2018 is pretty good. Until, well, until, well, until Germany, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you yeah. right. So, like, I agree with you, and I loved 2018, and that, actually, one of my favourite commentary moments, or not favourite commentary moments, but, like, biggest, co- was being in Hockenheim... Sure. So you're up in the grandstand and you could see Vettel and you saw him skid off and you're just like, oh, my God, yeah, I can't a, believe it. You know, and you're yeah. like, wow, I was here for this moment sort of thing. So, I, yeah, I loved it. But as an overall season, obviously, last year was was, well, maybe the best ever, but so much better than anything we've had even close to recently. So if we have another year, you know, of of with four teams competing, we don't need a sprint and we don't need a a, a a dodgy finish or a you know this the sport is in have, have faith in motorsport it's been around for 120 years now so it's got to be all right
0: absolutely and that, you'll be a part of that delivering that analysis and and that kind of insight onto the formula one season i think one thing i also wanted to touch on was when you look at a formula one race it is still Grand Prix racing, and obviously Formula E is still, you know, it's standing starts. It's relatively similar in, in structure, apart from, I guess, like attack mode and DRS and stuff. But is the style of racing kind of more similar than different between Formula One and, and Formula E? Do you think that the characteristics of, of well, I guess, like electric torque and, and the way the cars drive might change it a little bit? But when you're watching a, a, those two different categories, is the racing broadly similar?
1: yeah i think so i think there are little differences in every in every series but and uh sort of aerodynamics are kind of the big thing in formula one and single seaters if you can't follow closely and stuff that's probably the biggest difference but every other series to me is kind of the set whether it's a british touring car race or an f1 race like the the basics are are still Absolutely. fundamentally there it's only when you get into like endurance racing where the sort of fundamentals of what you're trying to do shift right a little bit but i think i find formula one and formula e pretty pretty similar really
0: and you spoke about hockenheim as, as one of the kind of standout moments that you've been at and, and witnessed and, mm. and commentated over in formula e do any of those stand out any championship defining moments or crashes
1: uh, season two, season two, uh, London, when Boemi and Degrassi crashed into each other, was like a
0: right, yeah,
1: yeah, a wow moment. Um, uh, good question for I think because Formula E, I don't. Well, because it's just not as big. Like when we were in Abu Dhabi at the end of last year for the last mm. F one race of the season, you're like, everyone in the world is watching this this it's weekend. Legit. Huge. you know that's where you're like and it's going to go down in history and but you know I, I i used to have a murray walker video called murray's magic moments and it had like iconic moments formula one moments from history and it's
0: schumacher
1: yeah. hill 94 it's uh villeneuve. Hill, hill
0: 96 as well when damon hill won that yeah exactly that and it's and it's
1: line. villeneuve and arnoux in dijon in 79 i think or 70, 70 something and the 1982 Monaco Grand Prix when everyone ran out of fuel and 1990 at Suzuka where Prost and Senna cracked you know all of these moments and so when you're there for one of those moments that is going to be one of those moments you're like ah oh, that's quite another big one you I feel have, it. the one was max verstappen's first win it was my first was it my first no But, like, it was my first full year of commentary in 2016. Rosberg and Hamilton crashed out. Verstappen wins. And you're like, this is a big day that means something, you know, in the same way that being at Estoril in 1986, I think, to see Ayrton Senna's first win would have been like, this is cool, actually. You know, and Formula E, it almost, because it has no past, Difficult to know what the future is going to say about the present, which sounds a lot more wise than it was meant to be. Uh,
0: no problem at all. I, I study philosophy, so it's perfect. <laughs> but um so that's interesting. So in in the end of your career, the Jack Nichols commentary montage. I'm sure there's plenty already, funny moments or whatever. But yeah, yeah that's the kind of thing that will be on there. That Buemi crash and and those significant moments from the the history of formula e hopefully we'll get some some more this year i think the porsche one too it was interesting actually
1: berlin actually the start of the start of the last race in berlin when evans stalled and mortara hit him that's probably in there
0: yeah yeah there was a thing actually about the um the mexico e3 that that, um hannah had noted hannah about how the porsche team dynamic towards the end of that obviously they have their two drivers running one two when it's their first victory in the sport, so you have to push the Mercedes button and say, don't fight, and try and stop them from fighting. But is that, Hannah noted that that idea of stopping them from fighting, why would you really do that unless you think that you have a championship challenge to build off of, and you think that those points might, you know, that you need the one and the two, you can't just have one, a first and a DNF. She noted that stopping them from fighting in that moment might have been a signal that Porsche believe their competitiveness will allow them to engage in a season long challenge. Do you agree with that? Do you think Porsche are up there as one of the manufacturers or is it just too hard to say when they're up against bigger teams?
1: I think it's twofold. I think they definitely should be fighting against for the championship because I think they are one of the biggest teams. Mm. And so I think Hannah's right on that front. But I also think the other part is they are one of the biggest teams, and they'd never won a Formula E race. And I think that was the right. maybe one of the bigger, maybe equal concerns is that we cannot let these two fight, and especially with <laughs> with Andre Lotterer because he's a, he's a feisty man. Absolutely, so, you know, we cannot afford to have these two crash and take each other out, and then we still don't get our first Formula E win. Because I think there's big, well. I asked Pascal this actually. I said, "Is there lots of pressure, you know, to take this first win? Does it feel like a relief?" And he was like, "There's no pressure. The only pressure comes from you, <laughs> i.e., right. me, i.e., a journalist." Um, right. And I don't know if I fully believe him or whether he's just saying that or whatever. But from running in, you know, they had to win that race, and yeah. I think that they just had to do belt and braces, get the win, and then them the monkeys off their back. And and yeah, sure, they'll they'll definitely be hoping that they can. Uh, fight for the title.
0: That's brilliant. Well, I think we've covered everything there. We can wrap it up here. I'll say a massive, massive thank you to me for coming on, Jack. It's been a, a real treat, and I can now look to the rest of the Formula E season and, and the BBC Five Live Formula One coverage, enlightened. You know, knowing a, a better perspective on how you arrived at commentary and, and the way you view it, I think, has been really, really brilliant. So I'll, um, I'll, I'll wrap it up here. I'll say a big thank you again for coming on and. This has been the Jack full show.